Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I've got an old friend of mine, Matt Browner-Hamble with me. Matt, how are you today? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? Good. I'm going to give a little bit of kind of the bio and then and then we'll get into some of the work that you've been doing. And as context, Matt and I went to college together a long time ago and was a good friend of mine in school. And then as many of us in our kind of pre-Facebook <laughs> generation, just kind of lost track of each other, frankly. And it's been probably a good 10 years since we last spoke, but it's fun to get reconnected and You've been doing some really interesting things, so I'm excited to get into it. So as background, Matt is an accomplished technology strategist, data-driven campaigner, digital marker, and writer. He's currently the interim chief technology officer at Greenpeace International. Greenpeace is a global independent campaigning organization with offices in 55 countries. Matt has previously worked for a direct-to-consumer renewable energy startup, international human rights, labor, economic justice campaigning context as well as in American politics and presidential and Senate campaigns, as well as some other interesting blogging and content creation that you've made over the years, which we'll probably get into. But first, I really want to dig into kind of Greenpeace itself. I think a lot of people in our minds think of the efforts they had against Japanese whaling and you know, the kind of the images of television, but it's actually a much older organization. Can you maybe talk a little bit about how you found yourself at Greenpeace and and give folks a little bit more context about the originations of the organization and what the focus is today. Yeah, sure thing. And, and first, thanks for having me on, Brian. And it's great to reconnect on this occasion. It's been a long time. And I think uh, a lot of us are using the COVID times to build back old bridges and have conversations that are probably long overdue, but easily you know slip past when it's hard in our regular lives. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely, man. So Greenpeace is about to turn 50. I think in 2021 is our, our 50th anniversary. And the organization has its roots in anti-nuclear campaigning. And the story of its founding 
actually goes back to a bunch of activists in, in Canada who were really opposed to ongoing U.S. nuclear testing in the North Pacific. And what the idea of Greenpeace was really about in the very beginning was, how do you do something so bold and powerful that it can inspire people to think differently about the world? And in this case, it was a bunch of young, mostly Canadian activists getting on a, a used fishing trawler and sailing it into the middle of a U.S. military nuclear testing zone and telling that story, bringing with them uh, videographers, you know, talking to the press ahead of time saying, we're going out into the middle of the ocean to sail into this area. And we're going to make the U.S. military not test a nuclear bomb by being there physically, by intervening at the points of ecological harm. And, you know, having a big throw-off concert before they go with a bunch of, you know, lefty activist musicians and crowds of people on the docks, sending them on their way and not really knowing what was going to happen, right? And telling a story, right? Telling a story of this journey of confrontation and peaceful resistance. And, you know, it turned out that the world paid attention and whether it was from press reports of, of you know, the buildup to this action to the story of confrontations and with the U.S. military along the way and, and attempted interventions in the process of trying to sail to this nuclear testing site, people paid attention. And what was, I think, really powerful for it was the idea, which we talk about internally, of a mind bomb, of being able to take an action that sets a, a bomb off in people's mind, that changes the way they think fundamentally and inspires them to take action. And so this, you know, in this context, it was ultimately unsuccessful direct action, but one which inspired people around the world. And Greenpeace started from there as a you know, really open source, what we would now consider open source movement. Offices uh, sprang up in many countries around the world. There was no governance to it. There was no structure. And it became a, a vehicle as, as a concept of, of the pursuit of both a brighter ecological future you know, back in the 70s, we talked a lot more about ecology, whereas today we talk about climate, but the idea that, you know, human impact on the world is something that we should care very much about, as well as a real resistance to the rise of nuclear weapons and nuclear power in the 70s. And obviously, this is at the height of the Cold War. More and more countries were testing nuclear weapons. And it was this sort of dual connection of climate and ecology, environment and ecology, on the one hand, and peace anti-weapons proliferation, anti-nuclear testing. And that was something that was resonant around the world. And over time, more Greenpeace offices popped up. It got to a point where there was a desire for there to be systems and governance and, and real organizational structure put into place. And from that, Greenpeace International eventually emerged. And today we have offices in 55 countries. Greenpeace International is based in Amsterdam, though I work remotely from Washington, D.C., and we have 28 national and regional offices around the world. And so our work still remains very focused on both climate and ecological issues, very much related to stopping climate change, influencing how we design and produce energy systems in the world. And you know, so whether that's increasing renewables or you know, really trying to change the reliance and move away from fossil fuels like coal and oil, or look at political power and how you know, how the world functions based on who has what power and who listens to whom. You know, it's really central still on this idea that we can inspire people to act, to lend their voice to issues that they care about, 
and change the power dynamics between government and corporations or people, individual people. So I think it's a, you know, there's this through line in the work on what issues we work on, but I think most importantly, and this is really what you're asking about, is, is how we seek to achieve that change. And I want to dig into a little bit more about kind of how Greenpeace operates and, and the infrastructure that they've set up, but how did you find yourself there? I mean, you and I were the same class in school. Wesleyan is, for those who aren't familiar, a very active campus and in terms of very passionate people about a number of subjects. And when we were there, that was no different. What inspired you to take this path that led you to Greenpeace ultimately? Yeah. So I have a photo that my parents have of me going to a, a Save the Whales protest in outside the United Nations in probably, I don't know, 1984, 1985, 1986, something like that. I, you know, I was four or five years old and it was a Greenpeace campaign around the fishing of whales and setting up global standard for what is and isn't allowed. And it was my first protest and I was there. And so it's sort of fortuitous that I ended up at Greenpeace because that you know, it was definitely one of those things to have in the photo album that now looks really, really like a something a match made in heaven, you know, something that was destined to be. But, you know, my parents were, were both lefties growing up. Uh, you know, they my mom went to Berkeley, my dad was at Columbia in the late sixties, early seventies, which were, were both places where obviously there was a lot of campus activism and radicalism. And so I grew up in a household that was was quite progressive. And, you know, prior to, to going to Wesleyan with you, I was involved in Students for a Free Tibet, which was a part of the kind of mid-late nineties anti-globalization movement, which saw many different issues from environments to economic and labor rights to human rights really get put into one basket of all these things that people see are wrong in the world and coming together at big, you know, marches and protests and rallies and that sort of thing. I and went to the Free Tibet concert in New York. Oh yeah. Yeah. Back I guess that was God, oh, I was in high school. Maybe. Yeah. It was like the late nineties. Ninety six, ninety seven. Um, yeah. It was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. And so you know, for me, the issue that got me into the anti globalization movement was Tibetan independence because it felt like an issue that was encapsulating all the different things that came up as individual silos within the anti-globalization movement. There was questions of political freedom, religious freedom, environmental degradation, human rights, and so on. And so that, that's how I got involved. But spent a number of years after college working for Students for a Free Tibet on staff. And while I was there, you know, this Students for a Free Tibet was an organization or is still active. It's an organization that uses direct action, nonviolent direct action as part of its theory of change. And what that means is doing things like direct interventions at the point of harm, or and so this is the example with Greenpeace of, of sailing a ship into a nuclear test zone, right? That, that is a direct intervention in the place that is going to be harmed. With the Tibet movement, it's actually much harder to do the direct intervention at the point of harm because of China's occupation of Tibet. And so what Students for Free Tibet would do is do actions that bring attention and visibility to the issue around things like when Chinese leaders traveled outside of China or when major corporations were doing business inside of Tibet. And so that would do things like hang banners off of buildings, block the transit of elected officials or not elected officials in the case of China, but officials, governmental officials to meetings that they're trying to go to, 
And in this space of activism, of, of direct action activism, there's a number of organizations in, in North America that do that, that practice this type of work and type of intervention. And Students for a Free Tibet was one of them. And Greenpeace was another big one. And so a lot of times when we did trainings for our activists or when we did actions, Greenpeacers would come and help us train young people to, you know, to climb buildings and hang off them by ropes and drop banners and, or, you know, lock down in front of a building with different techniques to make it really hard for them to be moved without harming the activists and using this as a way to intervene and draw attention to what the issue we're working on is. And so I, I had a lot of friends at Greenpeace and I had a lot of appreciation for an organization who cultivated this type of activism and this practice of activism, nonviolent direct action is as central to how they tried to have impact in the world. And so I moved on from Students for a Free Tibet. I got into politics. I got into the labor movements. And eventually, I, I, I burned out and ended up at a renewable energy startup because it, it felt like that was a different approach and something that, that we can talk about. But what always was clear to me when I left the progressive movement for the commercial side was if I ever came back, I wanted to be at an organization that used direct action as part of their theory of change that said, in order to win campaigns, we can't just write nice letters or make phone calls to decision makers or try and elect certain candidates instead of other candidates. We have to actually put our bodies on the line as part of the theory of change, because I think that is a, a powerful way that nonviolent change occurs. And it turned out that the place that I ended up back up at was Greenpeace. Again, in part, because of this years of history and appreciation for the organization's values and theory of change. Can you talk a little bit about how Greenpeace thinks, it seems like it's a dual pronged approach, right? They're, they appreciate the fact that they can't themselves facilitate this change directly, but they can be a catalyst for influencing culture by using this disruption. Can you unpack that a little bit more for us? Sure. So I think that the big question is, what is power? There are different types of power in the world. A lot of the times, the power that we see is really about who has money, right? Corporations have money. Wealthy individuals have money. That money and it enables them to access decision makers. It enables them to act with a different set of consequences for their actions. And by and large, it doesn't sound like what most nonprofit organizations are. Right? Most nonprofit organizations don't derive their power from money. So what are the other ways that you can derive power? You can derive power by representing people. Right? So a lot of, in some ways, elected officials are powerful in part because they represent people. And those people you know, give them the authorization to act in government. But lots of nonprofit organizations and campaigning organizations also build constituencies. Right? So a good example is the AARP. The AARP represents millions of older Americans. Their power with businesses, with government, is derived by the fact that they talk to a lot of people every day, and those people care what they say and will act if asked. And so the question for a nonprofit organization is, how do you actually reach people? Right? How do you build power by getting more people associated with you, listening to what you're saying, and then taking action when you ask them? And over the last number of years at Greenpeace, what we've tried to recognize is the greatest opportunity for reaching people, for having influence on what's happening in the world, on the issues we care about, is in really two settings. One is reaching people through culture, 
right? Culture is an incredibly powerful vehicle when it comes to how people think, right? So, you know, what is on TV? What are celebrities saying? What is the zeitgeist around certain, you know, hot issues? It's very much shaped by how people interact with things that are, are not directly that thing. So we're not, most people don't spend their days writing letters to the editor or calling up their c- congressman, right? But they do spend their days consuming Instagram and Facebook and watching TV and Netflix and so on. And so finding ways to use cultural avenues to reach people and have them think about environmental issues or think about political issues is, is one thing that we seek to do. And I'd say that is a challenging thing. Right. But there's a reason why you see celebrities post about issues they care about because they know that they are effective vehicles. The other thing, which I think is a lot more, for lack of a better word, something organizations can do with less dependency on a handful of influencers or or cultural vehicles is be responsive in moments of, of disruption. We see disruptions happening around us all the time, right? They might be environmental disasters, they might be global pandemics, they might be economic upheaval, but there's big opportunities for change in these moments of disruption. And what we do as an organization to prepare for them is identify what are the things that would be most likely to enable a sea change in how people think or a sea change in people's interest and availability to take action on certain issues. And then prepare for it and think proactively around what that might look like. And identify what we have to scan for. Like, what is the opportunity that we're waiting to see emerge so that we can reach more people, so that we can be the first people to invite people to take action when something happens in the world? And that's really critical. I think being able to be nimble and responsive to change that's happening in the world is a fundamental way that change, you know, it's possible to create change. It's possible to build power by reaching more people. Yeah. When I was doing my homework on our conversation, this concept that you Reference this mind bomb. I'd never heard the term before, but my immediate response was this seems like almost in the 70s version of leveraging social media or Instagram to have a multiple effect on a number of influential people that could then create a larger system or cultural shift in a mindset. Yeah, I think it's exactly right. What are examples of that nowadays, right? So like go back to like, we'll date ourselves a little bit, but like to when we were probably in high school or early college, I don't remember, and Ellen DeGeneres coming out as gay on The Ellen Show and had playing a character who was gay on TV at a time when that was not a thing, right? That was not part of what the programming on networks was. It was not part of what public discourse was about. And so, you know, there are ways in which certain things can happen and suddenly the sh- conversation shifts, right? Suddenly a different frame of references is there possible. And I think, you know, over the last 20, 25 years, there's some really great examples, especially around LGBT rights and the way there's been a cultural shift in that largely supported and helpfully driven through changes in what's on TV and what's in movies. And, you know, I think that's a really easy example in a lot of ways. But there are other more like not sustained examples that come up, right? So I think if you look at something like the COVID pandemic, I think in a lot of ways, there are fundamental shifts that are happening in terms of how people think, 
and what was not working before this pandemic and how the emergence of the pandemic and, and the changes to all of our lives that we're seeing as it relates to what happens after it, right? And we don't know yet what that's going to look like. And it's probably going to look very different in different parts of the world. But questions around what level of social support for people in economic crisis looks like, questions of what access to health care, health care, vaccines, treatment looks like. I think these are the sorts of things that moments of disruption really open the door for. And you don't know what's going to come out on the other side, right? Uh, there's a author, Arundhati Roy, early on in the pandemic, had an article in the Financial Times talking about the pandemic as a portal, right? The idea that when we get to this crisis, it's so big and so large, it has the opportunity to literally take us to a different place as a portal, like walking through a portal. And I think that's a powerful image for what these sorts of disruptions and these sorts of you know, mind-bomb moments can, can mean for the world. And you've been in this space your entire professional career, and you know, I'm sure you interact with lifelong Greenpeace workers and, and activists and campaigners, but it seems like I've been around for 38 years and I've seen some things happen. It's almost this sense of, to your point, LGBT rights, gay marriage, the normalization or legalization or decriminalization of marijuana. These concepts seem impossible. And then suddenly overnight, they seem inevitable. But there's all this work that goes in for years to make that shift in mindset and culture. And is that a corollary that, that's fair to draw? And have you seen that play out as well in your career? Yeah, I mean, I think it's exactly right. And I also think that's a pretty apt description of what it means to be a professional activist. You know, there are people that work on countless different issues day and night for years and years and years, and it maybe don't see a lot of traction or a lot of attention paid to it. And then all of a sudden, there's a tipping point, and that issue is massive, right? And I think a, a good example of that recently unfortunately, for very negative reasons, is gun control in the U.S., right? So people have talked about gun control in the U.S. for as long as we've had guns, I'm sure. But, you know, since the Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut and a number of different mass shooting events in, over the last 10 years, it's gone from being something that you don't hear politicians talk about because it's a losing issue for them to something that is, you know, central to, you know, at least on the Democratic side, every Democratic presidential primary candidate's platform of what are we doing about gun control? And I think that, you know, part of what I see in, you know, in the progressive movement, which is the side of the aisle I'm on, is that there is, you know, this constant effort to take an issue that isn't getting attention and find ways to make it relevant. But in the absence of that, still find ways to chip forward, you know, to make small steps and try and keep building up and building up and building up. And you never know what's going to be the breakthrough, right? Like a, a Swedish school-aged girl sitting outside parliament once a week saying, I'm not going to go to school because the climate crisis is too urgent. You know, as a professional campaigner, would I have sat down and said, okay, here's my idea for how we change the world? Probably not. That, that would have been pretty low on my list of things that I think are going to be impactful. But what do I know? You know, you see someone do something that is bold and personal and heartfelt and authentic. And that inspires people. You know, it gets them to think, hey, wait a minute, this isn't okay. What we're doing, our, our sort of day in, day out approach to, to how we're, you know, reacting or not reacting to the climate crisis doesn't work. And this child is telling us that. And we can listen. And so people do. And so people get inspired and others join in and students around the world. I've been, you know, fighting as part of Fridays for the Future for a couple of years now. And, you know, 
Greta Thunberg is, is speaking at Davos and speaking at the UN and on TV and is also still a student, you know, doing these Friday climate strikes. And it's, you know, it's that sort of thing. Like, the, you know, speaking of like what a mind bomb can be, sometimes it's very subtle, right? Sometimes it's something that is as simple as getting shaken slightly, right? And so shaken out of the normal, shaken out of your awareness of what is happening in the world around you and what the day-to-day is against what are the big things that we're missing. That seems like it directly relates to this concept that Greenpeace uses a lot, which is this billion acts of courage concept, right? Because you never know which one is going to elicit this change that you're advocating for. And, you know, Greta is a really good example of that. I mean, you would have thought it would be, you know, not a great use of time or not terribly effective. And now she's a world actor and a change agent for a huge movement of people and thoughts. Yeah. So we have this, our, our previous executive director, a man named Kumi Nadu, had uh, this concept of a billion acts of courage sparks a brighter tomorrow. And the idea being, you know, first of all, what is courage? Well, courage is actually something that is different for every person. And what one person, you know, have lots of friends and colleagues who will go and hang off a suspension bridge, blocking a shipping lane from, you know, a single rope and for them, that's work. Like that's part of what it means to be an activist. And for a lot of people, they look at that and say, that's crazy. That is terrifying. That's really courageous. But all of us have a different line in terms of what's within our comfort zone and what becomes an act of courage. And we can't define that for anyone. And so for some people, it might be writing a letter to the editor is actually a courageous act. Putting your name on something in public to be published, that could be an act of courage for some people. For other people, it might be in going to a protest and showing up and you know, standing outside a building with a sign that says, you know, act on climate. And it's a range and we can't define that for people. But what we can do is show people of each other's acts of courage and show people what is possible and show people how they can have a voice on the issues they care about. And if you do that enough, and enough people are inspired, and enough acts of courage are taken, we believe that there's a, an opportunity for it to just grow and spread. You know, the, that you can see these things start very small and go out like wildfire. And we don't ever know exactly, and again, Greta is a great example of it, you don't know exactly what is going to be the thing, the lit match that successfully catches into a wildfire and spreads. But you do know that the more people who you, you know, give opportunity, invite in, give them the tools to do this, the more likely we are to succeed. Can you talk about how you internally think about starting a campaign, how you leverage social media, how you use data and technology to put your story out there? Because obviously now it's a crowded marketplace, right? I mean, it seems like everyone has a voice and Andy Warhol was almost right that everyone's famous for 15 minutes now, seemingly. How do you cut through that noise and stand out from what is, you know, a lot of people seems like shouting at each other? Yeah, I mean, that's the fundamental challenge, right? So I think with that dynamic, which I think is a very apt description of of what the world is like now and what the media consumption patterns are and what social media allows for, it's hard to stand out. But I think that what you know, a professional activism, professional campaigning organization like Greenpeace has as a responsibility is the opportunity to identify what's the landscape, like where are the problems, where are the points of intervention, what are the critical pathways that you can 
can move down that forces decision makers to change their decisions, right? And whether that's in the context of governments and elected officials or regulators or executives, or in the context of corporate behavior, the question is, what are the things that you need to do to change a behavior? And then, you know, you kind of go from that and say, okay, that's the critical path that we want to move down in a campaign. Well, who are the key people that we need to reach to enable that? Whether, and again, depending on the context, it might mean, hey, you know, this executive listens to these 20 people, or this treaty fight is going to be decided based on the negotiators from these 15 countries, right? And maybe it's a very small audience, but it might be something else. It could be something like a, you know, an oil major that has shareholders around the world and you need to reach those shareholders or a advertiser that has a, you know, concern about whether their ads are going to be drawing positive attention or negative attention to their, their work. And so, you know, you figure out what are the key audiences you need to reach and what are the best ways to reach them? That question, that's really where we get into data, right? Like what is the data that we're using? And, you know, what we see is there's lots of different ways that you can understand the world around you. And some of that is things that's, you know, very straightforward, like polling and quantitative research and surveying key audiences and taking in the data and segmenting it and understanding, you know, who are the people who are most responsive? What are the ways that you can talk to them in a way that are most likely to get them to take a certain action or think a certain thing based on what they've been told? You know, part of it is listening, right? So we send our, our, our offices, send out emails and, you know, to supporters saying, you know, hey, this is what's going on. Can you take this action? Will you do this thing? And some say yes, and some say no. And the question is, how do you actually listen to that back and say, okay, we have to adapt and you know, talk to people about the things they want to be talked about while having a, a journey that we take them on and are trying to move them from point A to point B in terms of their activism, their place of comfort or discomfort, their willingness to be courageous. And then the, the third is really the outside world, right? What is happening in the media? What is happening on social media? What are the things that are beginning to emerge as key trends and dynamics? Other protest movements, other ecological crises, really being there to watch what's happening and see how it's relevant to our work and where those strategic opportunities exist. And so I think it's you put all this stuff together and it's a mix of you know, big picture strategy and understanding what needs to change in the world, and then kind of roll through the different steps of bringing more people into that work, reaching them in certain ways, being attuned to what's happening in the world around us, and and using all of that to stay relevant and be relevant to the people that we know that we need to reach, whether those are current Greenpeacers and supporters and activists, or people who aren't yet even aware that we exist as an organization and find ways to bring them into these campaigns. And what is the if you could name the, the two or three major focuses of the organization today, where are you spending most of your energy and efforts? The big picture right now is a lot on the COVID pandemic. You know, we are going through this process of, of really working in many different countries around the world to make sure that what's happening now and what happens after the pandemic is aligned with what we think needs to happen from a, a largely environmental and political standpoint. There's massive amounts of money that are being decided, spent by governments in certain ways. And certain industries are getting bailouts and certain bailouts are coming with restrictions or not. So, you know, if a airline or an oil company 
or a mining company is receiving money from governments, we believe that should be with strings attached, right? And there are conditions around what public investment in private enterprise right now is, especially in industries that have very significant climate impact. And so a lot of the question is, you know, the Biden campaign has a phrase, build back better, that actually, you know, was common in Europe around the start of the pandemic, are really thinking like, what are the things that, you know, we change when this is over? What are the ways in which we revisit public policy decisions, economic structure decisions after the pandemic to make sure that we're in a better place as a world? Because we know we're going to spend trillions of dollars around the world on restoring the economy and getting back to a really strong place. So we should be saying, well, how do we make sure that serves the people? How do we make sure that serves the planet? And taking the time to get that right, because we have this uh, very unique opportunity to do that. You know, overall, you know, take a step back from the pandemic. Greenpeace is really focused on how we do everything possible to confront the climate crisis. And a lot of that's based on making sure we're making good choices about the movement to renewable energy and movement away from oil and coal and gas, you know, and, and really making sure that as much as possible, fossil fuels are kept in the ground and not burned, that we protect our forests. And, you know, especially when you look at the kind of lungs of the world across Brazil and the Congo River Basin, Indonesia, you know, these massive forests that are being cut down primarily to make space for for agriculture, for raising raising meat, growing palm oil, you know these things that have huge impact on our planet's ability to take CO two out of the atmosphere, and then also thinking about, you know, what do we need to do to build a healthier relationship between government and and the people, and, and really make sure that there is more effort, more availability for governments to do what their people ask for, as opposed to do what you know major international corporations asked for. And, and I think that's, you know, in a lot of ways, a vector for how you have better policy outcomes on things like renewable energy versus fossil fuels and overall the climate crisis. There's a lot of talk in the headlines and, you know, on Wall Street about the fact that we may have already hit peak oil consumption globally. The decline of coal is almost a given at this point, and at least in, in North America not as much in Asia per se, but do you think we're at a true inflection point in terms of you know, transitioning to renewable or, or green energy? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's been there for a while. And I think part of what's changing over time is that the, the economics become clearer and clearer. Right? So when I was in the private sector, I was at a renewable energy startup in the US and we supplied solar and wind electricity to people in their homes and businesses. And the fundamental thing that, that I saw when I was there is that the biggest barrier is the cost of capital. And it's not a technology issue. The technology, and this was you know, over five years ago, was pretty much there. You know, solar panels were getting cheaper. Wind turbines are incredibly efficient. What wasn't working was that it was hard to get money into those projects. And so the rate of change was very limited by a problematic funding model. And so I think what we've seen over time is costs continue to drop for renewables. And you know, the, at the end of the day, you install a solar farm, you build wind turbines, and from that point, the cost of the energy is zero. And zero is a really low number when it comes to 
financing stuff, right? So it's all about the upfront cost of infrastructure and what the ongoing capital costs end up being because the, the energy is free. And so I think, you know, this is this time where, again, it goes to that question of build back better, right? We know the tech works on renewables and solar and storage is getting much better all the time. The question is, are we from a public policy standpoint, from a, a financial modeling standpoint, recognizing that and making sure that there's funds available to actually build the projects that we need at the rate we need them in the places that they need to be built. And so I think it's, you know, the future's here. There's not, it's not a question of, you know, we need some some magic sci-fi technology that doesn't exist yet. You know, we need cold fusion or something like that. There's lots of great things that will be invented in the future. But in terms of what we need right now, the tech is here and we just need to put money behind it. And if we put the money behind it at the scale that's needed, all that other stuff will start coming too. I want to ask you maybe an unfair question. We've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement and some other recent cultural shifts that it seems like the pendulum has swung back towards violent intervention as opposed to the nonviolence that was really prevalent in the 60s and the 70s with Martin Luther King and, and Gandhi and some others. How does your organization think about it? And do you ever personally feel frustrated that you can't, I don't think advocate for violence, but maybe advocate for being a little bit more proactive in your approach to being a catalyst for some of these changes that you're passionate about? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think it's a tough question, Brian, right? Because, you know, first and foremost... I told uh, you it was unfair. So. Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, first, Greenpeace only does nonviolent campaigning. I think that one of the challenges that you see is a propensity to look at nonviolent interventions and tar them with a description of violence, right? And so, you know, I'll speak about, you know, I talk about my personal frustrations and our work at Greenpeace. We do polling and we do research into what people think about us as an organization. And there's always some element that comes back in that data that says, well, they are turned off by us because of our violent actions. We don't do any violent actions, right? So what does that mean? It means that the story that's told when you know, Greenpeacers on small inflatable boats board an oil platform and occupy it and hang a banner off of it as being perceived as violent. I think that that gets at two fundamental things. One is violence. The label of violence is a very, very loaded term in our society, in all societies. And it's a way to disempower a, a group of people, a way of saying, don't listen to them they're violent. And I think in the context of Greenpeace, that's not so much of a problem because at the end of the day, we don't do anything violent and we never would. And it's more of a question of what our critics say about us that we can handle. I think in the context of what we've seen in the last year in particular with Black Lives Matter, the speed at with which actions around protests get described as rioting is something that we have to be very careful with. Because yes, there were riots. And yes, there was some property destruction. And I think certainly if you look at what's happened between clashes of Black Lives Matter activists and Antifa activists against some white supremacist activists, you know, there is violence, right? There, there absolutely is. But I come from a place where I, I tend to distinguish between violence, which is something that I think we do against people or living beings, and property destruction. And while I don't advocate for property destruction, 
I personally don't view, you know, a window getting broken as an act of violence. I think it's an act of property destruction. And, you know, we shouldn't advocate for it and we don't. But when we attach the word violence to it, it's about marginalizing a very real critique that's out there. And, you know, again, there are many different tactics. And I, I don't think violence is one of them for sure. And I don't advocate property destruction. But there will be times where a community or a group of people feel like no one's listening. And how can we make them listen? And maybe, you know, a brick through a window is the emotional release that someone needs. And I think we have to understand why it's gotten to that point and look at the fact that it's gotten to that point as something that requires real intervention and, and also a lot of compassion, right? A, a recognition that this speaks to a failure of society to address centuries-old grievances in the case of Black Lives Matter. And so what we have to do is cultivate a way to do that without violence and without property destruction. But getting there is a, you know, involves a lot of introspection and the ways in which we might quickly dismiss something is something that we have to be really cognizant of. Why are we dismissing it? Why does the peaceful reaction by tens of thousands of people to police murdering someone result in a very quick labeling as, as, as violent movement or a violent protest? Because it's not about listening to those grievances. It's about turning them off and putting them in a different category where we don't need to listen to them. In your opinion, after being in this space your entire career and being very engaged in system change, cultural change, shifting power dynamics, in your opinion, what is the most effective thing that an individual can do if they feel passionate about eliciting any of those changes or shifts? Man, that's such a good question, Brian. I feel like the simplest thing is to talk about it. You know, to talk to their friends, talk to their family about why they care about it and what it means to them, to get them to spend time thinking about it and kind of, you know, let's go back to the Greta example, right? It's one action that then goes out in a small circle and the circles get wider and wider and wider until you have a global movement. I think what people can do is inform themselves about what they care about, have strong opinions about it. And then be willing to share those opinions with the world. And everything else is just tactics about, about what that, how that manifests. You know, but I think the, the question of that, where is the, you know, the outer limits of your comfort zone? How do you get into that space where you're acting courageously? That's something that people can explore and really develop over time. And you know, it might be you care about the climate and you're standing outside your school taking a Friday on strike. And, you know, a few months later, you're going to an activist training camp with Greenpeace USA to learn how to climb buildings and drop banners. Or, you know, it could be that that's it. And, you know, you talk to your friends and family about it and you encourage them to donate to environmental organizations and you maybe write some letters and to the editor or letters to your congressman. And, and that's, that's okay too, right? Everyone's going to find a different pathway into how they speak up for the things that they care about. I asked our mutual friend, Zach Lampel, the exact same question. I interviewed him a week or two ago. And, you know, for reference, he does the international civil rights law. And, you know, it's difficult work and it's a glacial pace. 
but he had the same, very similar response. He said, start local, start in your neighborhood, start with your family and friends and become passionate and informed about something and go from there. And I think it, you know, it's good advice because oftentimes, especially considering being bunkered in with the pandemic, you can feel like a very small cog in, in, in a larger machine. And it's very hard to think that you can affect some kind of change, but that's a great response. And thank you for that. You know, one thing I would add to that, one of my favorite authors is Hunter S. Thompson. And he said, politics is the art of controlling your environment. And he meant that very literally. He meant it's the art of, for where you are in the world, having influence over it, living where you want to live, how you want to live. And I think what we see now, and I think in the pandemic, it's really clear, but certainly as it relates to the climate crisis, we have to start by making changes where we are, you know, making changes with our local governments, like making changes with protecting public spaces and, and public lands where you are, where you live. And it ripples out from there. You know, people are looking for examples of success. People want to see what's working elsewhere in the world and bring it into their own place, their own lives. And so, you know, don't be afraid to start local. Don't be afraid to focus on where you are and what, what environment you're in first. Well, Matt, thank you so much for the time. This has been tremendous. And it's great to just catch up with you in general and hear more about the work you're doing. If people are interested in learning more about Greenpeace, maybe educating themselves, perhaps supporting your efforts, what's the best way for them to initially get involved or engaged? Sure thing. The best thing to do is go to greenpeace.org. That will connect you to our local offices site, no matter where you are in the world. And Sign up to get emails and see what interests you, you know, see what campaigns we're working on that you would want to be a part of and go from there. Thanks, Matt. Really appreciate it. Great talking with you, Brian. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.